0: All right, good morning. Um, If you have your Bibles, if you would uh, open them up to Psalm 88. If you don't, the words are going to be behind me here. Let's read this together. It's a bit long, so here we go. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves, Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in abandon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land for forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast your soul away? Why do you hide your face from me, afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I have suffered your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. You may be seated. So that's a pretty long psalm to start out. And the reason I wanted to read the whole thing was to illustrate this great lament that the psalmist has. Um, there's 150 psalms in the collection of the Book of Psalms. Uh, One-third of them are lamentations. Uh, 49 of those 50 all have some kind of like um, resolution in them. They all have some kind of like hope and joy coming out of the lamentation except for Psalm 88, like we just read. Uh, uh, John asked me to preach this week. He texted me and said, hey, would you like to preach? And I said, yeah, of course. And he's like, okay, July 17th, is that good? I was like, yeah, absolutely. He's like, okay, great, uh, Psalm 88. And I was like, okay, great, no problem. And I, of course, I had read it in the past, but I guess I had forgotten about it. So then I, then I actually read it, and I was like, surely he didn't mean Psalm 88. Like, he, he made a mistake. So I texted him, and I was like, hey, uh, have you actually read this? Like, do you really want me to talk about this? And he's like, yeah, that's what I want you to do. I uh, I, I couldn't believe it, but, um, you know, here we are. So <laughs> anyway, I, I read this psalm over and over and over and over, trying to find this silver lining in the psalm that I could, like, pull out this miraculous sermon about how God, how great uh, our sufferings are and how God uses those sufferings when we're down in the pit for his goodness. Uh, and to be honest, I couldn't find it. Uh, furthermore, I sat over there, we're kind of second row Baptists, so I sat somewhere over in that area uh, reading that psalm during other preachers up here talking, trying to figure out exactly what God was trying to say through this psalm and what he was trying to birth in me to give to you today Uh, so a lot of times John or James or the other John or Evan would be up here talking and you know I'd be buried in this psalm reading about despair and darkness and friends leaving you and all this stuff and meanwhile you guys are laughing around me and having a good time with these other psalms and I'm like you guys have no idea what's coming just this is going to be so sad Uh, I just realized I rolled up my sleeves before I came up here, you know, like when you're about to get busy to work, you roll up your sleeves, I guess like my body's like in work mode here, Uh, you know, because this psalm is um, something really hard to think about, and it's something um, really hard to talk about even. Um, Often when I prepare for these sermons, I I pour over the text, right, and I spend a lot of time in prayer about them, and I start making notes, right, I just make pages of notes. Um, I listen to other preachers' sermons, I listen to, uh, or I pick out other theologians, uh, see what they have to say about these psalms, and then uh, slowly I take all those notes and I start formulating them into the flow and structure that I want this sermon to go in, or the particular sermon to go in. This one was completely different. I couldn't even bring myself to pray about this psalm. Uh, it was hard making notes because I couldn't understand what in the world the Lord had for me in this I felt like as though I'd been kind of cut off from him. I couldn't talk about this. A lot of the theologians that I usually pull from didn't even touch this psalm. They had one line, you know, summaries that basically read something like, I don't know what to say, you know. This is this is a hard psalm. This is a hard piece of text. Um, because, you see, there, there exists this disconnect in all of us. And if, and if you're honest with yourself, there exists this disconnect that you want to believe these things that you've learned academically about God, right? And what you've read in his scriptures and what his spirit has re- revealed to him. You want to believe the pious things that you've learned in Sunday school and your Bible studies where God is, uh, you know, so grand and, and so loving and he cares about you so, so much and he's a friend to you. And, but you never get into, like, the dark stu- stuff, right? So, so while you're suffering, there's this... Uh, there's this disconnect going on about well God loves me so much but here I am hurting. If he loves me, how can I be hurting? How can this be how can this be happening to me? But yet I'm hearing from everybody that it's it's okay because God loves me, things are going to be okay. It's a really tough place to be. You feel like you can't get within God. You can't get close to God with a billion foot pole. You pray and nobody hears you. Your tears fall and no one sees them. And it's like God can't hear you or he doesn't hear you. And if he does hear you, he's unwilling to do anything about it. It's a really hard place to be. The psalmist, as you just read, feels that way. And apparently he's felt that way for a long time. He even talks so much about suffering terrors of God. Like, think about our world right now and you think of terror. That's a hot-button topic. And this guy's using that language to describe what he's suffering from God. There are people in this building this morning that feel that way. I know that. There are people that if you're really honest, you feel exactly what I'm saying. You probably don't want me to be saying it. You probably don't want to be thinking about it, but if you're really honest, if you dig down into yourself, you feel this way. We've all been there at some point. Some of us have been there for a really long time. So I want those of you that are hearing the sound of my voice and know what I'm saying to them, I I want you to listen to what the Lord does have in this psalm for you. So um, in preparing for this, I actually was able to pull out a, full, uh, a few things. I will say I've you know, had ample amount of time to prepare for this, but there was like this period of drought where, again, I was sitting there reading and reading and reading and reading and had nothing to say. And it all kind of came to me in this past week, and it, it's been pretty, pretty in, uh, uh, interesting in, in, the, in, the, in the, what the Lord has to share this morning. So the first thing I I learned in reading this psalm is that this psalm is a testament to the authenticity of our faith, right? And I I just want you to hear me out on this. Um, The first thing that I saw is this psalmist used real, raw, unabashed language to speak to God. You can hear his cries. You can feel his pain in his words. He's saying, God, why can't you hear me? And if you can hear me because I pray to you every day, why aren't you doing anything about this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist, his name is Heman, it, it might be Haman, if I'm pronouncing it wrong, excuse me, was actually a worship leader. If you go back in your Bible and you read at the top, it says uh, uh, a song of the sons of Korah. Yeah, you can go back into 2 Kings and you can actually read about Heman just a little bit. Uh, I think he's also in 1 Chronicles. He was a, he was a worship leader, right? Uh, he... he clearly knows who God is. He was anointed to lead congregations into worshiping the Lord through Psalm. He obviously knew God. Uh, this wasn't some, like, writing that somebody just, like, found on the street corner, right, and put it together in the Bible that we read today. You, you do realize that. This person was important, and, and, and if you consider the history of the Bible and all the different constructions that it's gone through to where we read it today, this text still exists, um, what's interesting, uh, this guy being a worship leader, really kind of uh, uh, brings more life to this psalm, because during this era, you had to be qualified to be in the service to God. You had to be a part of the priesthood. In our young Bible study, or our young couple's Bible study we're actually reading in Ezra, and at the end of Ezra chapter two. Uh, it's talking about all of the Israelites that are now leaving exile and coming back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God. And as they're getting back into Israel, uh, if they could not prove that they were actually uh, from an Israelite family, if they couldn't prove it, if they didn't have documentation, they were disqualified. They were completely disqualified from service of God. Matter of fact, they couldn't even eat like the holy bread, that you know, like the bread we use for communion. They couldn't even touch it without a, pre- a priest being... Uh, in the area, right? So this guy Haman, I mean uh, Heman, um, he was definitely qualified to be a worship leader, and therefore we can logically conclude that he knew God and he knew the works of God. Um, uh, he, you know, he, he isn't me. He isn't just some guy that's lucky enough to get up here and talk to you, right? This guy was qualified. He was so he was anointed to be a worship leader and yet he's still kind of talking like this. It's included in our Bible that we read. This is incredible. You know, if I was to create a religion, this is a common uh, uh, thing about our about our faith is, you know, it's just some made-up religion. If I was going to make up a religion, if you were going to make up a religion, there would not be anything in my religious text that remotely looked like this, right? No, I'm serious. Think about it, right? If I was going to create a religion and dupe all you people into being hypnotized, to following me, giving me all of your money, uh, me controlling your life. If you ever talked to me in any kind of way that looked like Psalm 88, the great God of Justin would kill you instantly. Right? And if you're honest with yourself, so would you. If you created a religion such that someone had to follow after you, you wouldn't let any text like this. Like, you, you could not you low person. You know, I will crush you. You could not possibly speak to me like that. Um, (laughs) <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, the psalm in verse 10 through 12 I'll read it again for you it says do you show your wonders to the dead do their spirits rise up and praise you is your love declared in the graves your faithfulness and destruction are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deed in the land of oblivion the guy's like bringing reproach against God this is like Heresy, you cannot do this. This is blasphemy. This guy is like bringing it to God. Like, you know, come on. Are you only going to uh, show how great you are to those that can't even worship you? Here I am crying out to you and you're not paying attention to me. Who talks to God like that? You would not talk to the great God of Justin like that at all. There's, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. What's also really beautiful about this is that it shows you that our God is not easily offended. Amen. Because if you, again, if we were all worshiping the great God of Justin, Justin's easily offended. Very, I wear my heart on my sleeve. All you guys probably know that. The second I'm mad, you're going to see it. The second you talk to me like this and I'm the great God of Justin, you're getting squashed. There's no question. How, how fantastic is it that we can talk to God like this? Uh, there's beauty in knowing that you can approach him that way. I'm not losing sight here, and I want you to hear me. I'm not losing sight of the fact that People here are suffering. I'm not losing sight of the fact that real things in this life hurt and that they cause you pain, but I wanted to highlight first that this is a great testament how authentic and real our God is. Excuse me. The last thing I want to say about that is when you see that this text has made it through all of this history to get here, such that you can still read it today, it shows you that God really cares about you and what you feel. And he cares about your faith. He cares about your heart, right? We believe that all of Scripture was inspired by God, right? And here's the psalmist writing, bearing his heart out, God cares intimately about you and what you have to say. He doesn't care about your religion he doesn't care about you showing up here every Sunday. He doesn't care about you giving them a certain amount of money or doing the right things or dressing the right way or talking the right way. He doesn't care about that. He wants your heart. He wants your faith in him. Sorry, not to get too preachy on you there. The second thing that uh, I pulled out of uh, this text is uh, things in this life worth having are worth fighting for, right? Right? Um, And relationships require us to take things on. During the course of any kind of relationship, I don't care what it is, if it's a boyfriend and girlfriend, a husband and wife, uh, just, just a pal, whatever it is, during the course of any relationship, conflict is going to come up, right? Anytime conflict comes up, you have two choices on what to do. The first choice is you can leave it alone. You can do nothing. The second choice is, no matter how messy the fallout is, you take it on. Uh, To kind of illustrate these two different things, I want to give you a a story. Uh, During my college years, I uh, had a very close friend, right? This guy and I were very close. Uh, We were both in the the engineering college. Uh, He lived in the dorms, I lived at home. Uh, He let me sleep on a cot in his dorm because we were, you know, either partying, I mean, studying all night, and he didn't want me driving home. Or, uh, you know, he had room and board paid for through his scholarship, so he had a bunch of extra meals, right? And I was a starving college kid, so he gave me his meals that were extra. Um, we, we scheduled our classes together. Uh, University of Houston, the engineering college, does something kind of weird that, like, you'll get a class at, like, 8 in the morning, then another one at, like, 9 o'clock at night, and that's it for the day. I don't know why they did that, but it was really, really hectic. So uh, he and I, like, got together all the time and planned out our... Uh, Planned out our schedules for the first few years of college, um, my girlfriend and I at the time uh, my now wife uh, we actually hit a bit of a rough patch. Uh, we split up it, it was it was tough it was very tough on me um, and this guy was you know my confidant he was he was everything to me right he uh, he was there for me he was a shoulder to cry on he was my counsel he was he was everything uh, then I don't exactly know when it happened. I guess it was uh, the, maybe the end, uh, or the beginning of the fourth year of our college. This other guy um, kind of came into our clique, if you will. The engineering uh, college was, uh, my group of friends was huge when we started, right? Then just through attrition, it just started going down real quick. So by the fourth year, we started out with a group of, I don't know, like probably 75 guys that all hung out. By the end, there was like five of us that graduated together, you know, if you can figure out the attrition rate there. Well, this new guy had, like, kind of come in. He transferred from a different university, and uh, he became friends very quickly with my friend, right? And this guy wanted, like, nothing to do with me whatsoever. And, uh, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a dude, so, it, I mean, I guess it was, I was okay with it, but, but I saw that my friendship with, with the other guy had started kind of, you know, falling away, right? We were kind of separating further and further, and my friend... My friend at the time started doing things that, like, I really didn't approve of, right? Um, during this course of time, I mean, I could go into my whole testimony. I won't, I won't take all your time. But, uh, you know, I kind of come to my faith, and I was starting to figure things out. And this dude was starting to go the other direction, right? Like, the total opposite way. But we were so close that I thought that, you know, we were going to remain through it all. Um, <laughs> we did not, actually. Uh, so things just started to deteriorate to the point that we weren't even speaking to each other. Uh, so we went ahead and graduated, and um, I got a loft in downtown when I got my first job, and it turns out he got another loft in the same building, like, really close to me. And I was like, oh, man, this is great. We're going to rekindle our friendship, and things are going to kick—well, th-. that didn't happen. Um, and a matter of fact, when I, when I ended up leaving that first job, I applied where he was applying—where uh, he was working. And after applying, I didn't hear anything back from the hiring manager, so I just called him up and said, hey, you know, what's going on? And he said, well, hey, actually, I found out that you were friends with, uh, you know, to be named, to to be remain nameless. And so I went and asked him about you, and actually, it turns out, he called you a flake. And I was was devastated. I was completely devastated. Um, Now, I do want to say that the person I am today is a very, 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 very different person than I was back then. But if any of you in this room know me, I am not a Flake. I have worked incredibly hard to never let that name be anywhere associated with me, never be in the same sentence, paragraph, novel as my name, right? Um, That hurt. That hurt a lot. I've worked uh, really hard at being a very hardworking, ambitious, and friendly person. That's what I want to be known as. Uh, The last thing I ever thought anybody would have called me would be a Flake. So this conflict arose in our relationship and I elected to do nothing about it. Today, I still wonder what would have happened if I would have taken it on and dealt with it. So the second option when conflict arises, you take these things on and you deal with it. And that's what I see happening here in Psalm 88. Things in this life that are worth having are worth fighting for. My dad taught me that. He taught me a lot of great things. The other really great thing he taught me was stand up for what's right and never flinch. Uh, In meaningful relationships, we're going to experience hurt. There's no question about it. But to do nothing about the hurt in a relationship means that that relationship doesn't really mean anything to you. Because again, things in this life are worth fighting for. Uh, The the psalmist here, he clearly doesn't want to be angry with God, but he is. He's taken this thing head on. He doesn't want to be feeling like God's far off, but how can he not listen to what he's saying? Uh, Also, I kind of noticed that in approaching God this way is a form of worship, and you've got to follow me here. I know most of you guys are already checked out, probably checking out Facebook or whatever, but follow me here. Tune back in for a second. Let's say you go to a restaurant. You take your wife. Uh, Or you take your girlfriend, whatever. You go to a restaurant and you order something really fancy. Yeah, let's say you get, I don't know, a steak and a potato. And uh, they bring you out like the worst garbage you've ever seen in your life. You really want to do something about it. Who are you going to go to? Are you going to go to the busboy? Are you going to go up to the hostess? Are you going to talk to your companion you brought? If you want to do something about it, who do you go to? You go to the person in control. You go to the manager. Even if you don't go to the manager, if you go to the server, who's the server going to go to? He's going to go to the manager. And if all these things work out, who's going to come to your table and talk to you about it? The person in control, the person that can do something about it. So you see, in going to God this way, and taking these very real things that you have that you're willing to take on, it's a sign of worship. You're you're showing him that, hey, I care about this relationship. I care about this to the point that I'm going to bring this to you, and I'm going to fight through this, Because I love you and I want this to work. And I want my stake fixed. Uh, (laughs) um, You know, this psalmist is experiencing what some theologians call partial desertion, right? He talks about darkness surrounding him, all of his friends leaving him, only darkness being his only friend. He sounds desperate, like there's no one there that can hear him. We can't really consider this complete desertion, Because in the context of the entire biblical narrative, we know that God is with us, right? We know that. This guy, he knew that. There's no way that he didn't know that. We can't just look at this text in a vacuum because we know that we're not alone. And that's actually my third point. We are not alone. This feeling of darkness is a really tough thing. Generally, these feelings tend to linger and linger and linger You do all the right stuff, you say all the right things, you pray all the right things, and yet you're still dark. It's still hurting. It's not going anywhere. I want to tell you another story. I'm full of stories today. Um, I had another friend in college that was actually the exact reverse of the other story I told you. So he and I started out not being good friends. Then uh, over the course of time, we became incredibly close. We started living together uh, towards the end of college, and we actually got that first loft together I mentioned earlier. He was dating in college uh, easily the, the, the cutest girl in engineering. I know my wife's in here, but uh, there's... And hear me out. There, there's not a whole lot of girls in engineering anyway, right? Uh, and then this girl was clearly the cutest one, and he was dating her. And uh, they had a lot of struggles uh, going through their dating time, but they actually ended up getting married, I think, uh, about a year out of college. Um, this girl... Uh, is a, a wonderful, wonderful woman. Um, she is now married to my friend. They have a wonderful uh, home down in Clear Lake. They have two children. And it's so painful. She she has this very rare form of cancer. She has this cancer that they can't figure out, that they can't stop. Um, it's It's been going on pretty much since we've been in college, and I remember that she had to, like, miss, you know, weeks at a time because she was out doing these surgeries and taking experiments and whatever else. So all these different methods that they've been trying just haven't been working and she's got two babies to, to raise. And she gave up her life so she could become a mother and take care of these children and yet she doesn't know if she's going to wake up tomorrow. Right? So I called my friend, um, I, I guess it was about a month ago now, well, it was about two weeks ago now, and um, we were going through this and he starts laying out this story He's laying out this story of, a, of another failed surgery, of another failed experiment, of another failed test, of another failed drug, and I can hear him, I can hear it when he's speaking to me that, man, the guy's hurting, he's hurting so bad. And, uh, you know, in the back of my mind, I, I, I'm, you know, preparing for the sermon, I'm like, well, God, I mean, you know, clearly you're trying to tell me something, so what is it? What are you trying to tell me? You know, and the guy's just telling me more and more of this story, I mean, I'm, He's crying, I'm crying, it's, it's bad, you know? Um, and then at the end of the story, you know, he says, I want you to pray for me. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, you know, who could bring themselves to pray in your condition? Who could do that? My friend has it. He knows that he's not alone. Um... You know, Jesus experienced complete darkness in the garden of Gethsemane before being sentenced to death. Jesus experienced complete desertion, right, while suffering the wrath of God. If you remember, he's in the the garden, he's praying, and he's so nervous. If you remember from Luke, he's actually nervous and sweating to the point that it's like sweating blood, right? But something interesting happens when he does that. If you remember, he goes to the garden with his disciples, and he sets his disciples here, and he goes over there, and he's praying, and that's when the blood's dripping and all that. He gets up and he comes back to his disciples. Now, I know, I know in the context of the story, he's not coming back to them to say, hey, look, here I am, I'm still with you, even though I'm over there suffering. But just think of the significance of it. He's over there suffering complete isolation, what is full desertion, not partial any longer. And yet he comes back. Think of that. He's still with his disciples, even in that time. Even while hanging on the cross, what does he say about the people that are hurting him? It says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even to the point of being broken, crushed, bruised, and hanging on a cross, what does he say? For they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them. So if you think of that, in the context of all of this, and hearing what this psalmist says, in Jesus' complete desertion, he does not leave us. You know, um, if there's kids in the room, I'll try to... Try to make this as nice as I can. I remember for one of the Bible studies that I was leading uh, a few years back. I believe we were going over the book of Ephesians. I was getting ready, and there's a part of the book of Ephesians talking about the spiritual world, the evil spirits that exist in the world. I remember reading an article. Uh, <laughs> I remember reading an article of a young girl being murdered by two boys that were selling their soul to the devil. It was horrible. The article was horrible. It was actually in the Houston Chronicle because this crime happened here in Houston. They, they killed this girl in a, in a horrible way. They mutilated her body, and then they tore her skin by cutting an upside-down cross into her belly. I remember getting done reading that article and being disgusted, just being utterly, like, on-the-floor, trying everything I can not to vomit because it was horrible. And then the next thing that happened was is I was disgusted with God. I said, where were you? Right? Where were you, and how in the world could you let this happen? I hurt. It was really hurting. If I'm honest, if I ever do have uh, thoughts of doubt, this is where they come from this kind of line of thinking and if you're honest so do yours and God didn't give me an answer where he was he didn't say anything to me but in preparing for this uh, this sermon today uh, he actually did and it comes from Isaiah 53 5 and I'll read it it says but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we have been healed so I think about Being that girl's dad, I have a son now, Uh, Jeremiah uh, fell the other day, and when he fell, his butt kind of hit the ground first, and then his head slammed into the back of the corner of a chair, he's got this wicked bruise right on top of his forehead. And you can ask Chanel, I come unglued because of the hurt that he was feeling, not because I wasn't paying attention to him and he fell, but because he was hurting. So I put myself into the shoes of uh, this dad. I can't imagine the hurt that he must have felt. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. And while the words of Isaiah 53, 5 don't take away the hurt of the bad things that we feel in this life, it does do something very real. It doesn't let hurt be the final word. Jesus is. Jesus is the final word. You can be confident that during the dark times, because God, through Jesus, has taken it, he's overcome it through the work on the cross. I don't understand how I can be hurting, but I do know that God is sovereign, right? I don't understand how I can feel this way, but because he is God, I will look to him, God of my salvation, like the psalmist starts, right? I will look to him because I know that he is my savior. My hurt doesn't get the last word anymore. Um, How many of you have read The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis? Oh, fantastic. Oh, great. A few people. Um, Well, uh, for those of you who haven't, I'll give you uh, uh, some backdrop here. I had to write it, so I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, It's a story about a young boy named Diggory and a girl named Polly. They kind of become friends. Uh, They live in homes connected together through an attic. One day, while crawling through the attic trying to get to each other's homes, they they go into the study of this character named Uncle Andrew. Uh, Through some interesting magic things, he transports them to another world. Uh, After a series of interesting events, the two arrive in a new world that had just been created by Aslan. Aslan is this great lion. All the other animals in this new world recognize him to be, like, the leader, right? He's, like, the king of this new world. Um, So Diggory thinks to himself, like, if this guy's so great, maybe he can help me in some way. Because you see, Diggory back home has this mother that's horribly sick. Horribly, horribly sick. Um, So when Diggory finally gets his chance to go up to Aslan... um, uh, who, who, by the way, is symbolic of Jesus, he asked Aslan to heal his mother, and here's the text from that point of the story. He says, this is Diggory speaking, but please, please, won't you or can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up until then, he, Diggory, had been looking down at the lion's great feet and the huge claws he had on them, but now, in his despair, he looked up at the face What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face had bent down near his own, and great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. There were such big, bright tears compared to Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know, grief is great. The narrator goes on to explain that while Diggory's despair did not lift in that moment, something inside him definitely did change. He was no longer alone. Someone else cared. So to close, I, uh, I want you to understand this singular point from all of this stuff that I've said. Our God cares. He is not weak. You can take to him your deepest, darkest cries and he will not run away from it. And fortunately for you, he won't squash you for it. He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want some pithy pious religion. He wants your heart. He cares for you. He cares for your heart. He wants you to be very real with him and to have faith in him. That no matter how difficult it is, our relationship with him is worth it. It's worth fighting for. It's hard. It's hard, very hard sometimes. And he never promised that it was going to be easy. But he's with us. And you're not alone in this life. You know, if there's anyone here today that wants to stop fighting whatever you're fighting alone, come get John. Come get me. We're going to get real about it. We'll fight it out together. Because you need to know that you are never alone. And you are never alone.